Hi, I'm Grania. And I'm Abby. And this is Against, Against the, the law. law. We're a podcast about the law. The legal system. And how it affects society. But we're not a true crime podcast. So, Abby, you were in South Africa. Yeah, just just got back last week. That's pretty great. How was the trip? It was really it was a really cool trip. What were you doing over there? I was there for a conference of campaign organizers and people who work in environmental justice, social justice, not too many lawyers, but a few lawyers. And uh, it was people from all over the world, from a lot, mostly from Africa, but I think there were definitely people from all parts of, of the of the globe. Mm-hmm. And how did you come to go to this conference? Um, just through different organizations that I'm part of, uh, and I have, you know, I have a small organization that I work with, BMLP. What does that stand for? Black Movement Law Project. And so through that work, I've gotten to know other kind of civil society people and international campaign types. And this was kind of a crossing of the stars of people I knew. I thought it was going to actually be in Nairobi, Mm -hmm. but then because of the elections there, we mm-hmm. moved it to South Africa, so ended up going to South Africa for the first time, and it was really, it was an incredibly interesting place to be, and, and I got to meet a really, a lot, whole lot of really cool people. I did one interview, so. Whoa, thank that. you. <laughs> <laughs> with, a, with a really cool lawyer I met. We, we, we did a training together on how to engage the legal system um, in whatever your campaign goals are, or, or in your campaigning, so. Uh-huh strategizing on how they can use the legal system in their particular location to to support their work right so if whatever they're a lot of women's rights work and and other types of uh kind of social justice work so i th- i think i think we were, we were helpful and but she was the, the the woman i interviewed so so cool that i wanted to bring it to our podcast and kind oh. of get a Get Hello, in- listeners. <laughs> get a little international perspective on, on the on the kind of inner workings of being a lawyer and and working, you know, in that kind of movement social justice world. Mm-hmm. What was her name? Her name is Murthani Muravi. What organization does she work for? She's currently with Oxfam, uh-huh. but but uh, she a lot of what she's talking about was kind of her prior work and her kind of career experience doing human rights work in, in, uh, she's based in Kenya, but she's kind of worked all over. But before we get to the interview, how was your week? Um, mine was pretty busy. I have a trial coming up and I had a very significant sentencing for a really dear client of mine that was really tough. So that's what I did. How did, how did that go? Well, it's, this is going to sound crazy, but, um, he got sentenced to 24 years and was that is that a good thing or is that a bad thing i mean obviously it's a very bad thing but it was good considering everything else and like his family was crying tears of relief um it's just really heartbreaking because you know he's lived a life that is so filled with horror and punishment and depravity and degradation that it's hard to imagine why he would have to be punished anymore at all and like instead of just like being in a room of hugs like 
Yeah. <laughs> like you should just get a room of hugs instead of 24 years in federal prison. But, yeah. Well, on the topic of mass incarceration, so did you see this thing about Meek Mill? Yes. He had an old gun or drug conviction, and he was on probation. This was this was a case in Philadelphia. He got some, I guess it's common practice there to get huge. Long terms of parole or probation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you're basically, and that's that's another part of kind of our criminal system that is mm-hmm. is under it's kind of under reported and, and not really known that that so many people even if they're not incarcerated we have like two million plus people incarcerated but then right there's at least that that many again under supervision of some kind you know we we talk a little bit in one of our previous episodes about the arbitrary nature of the prisons themselves but the parole system and the probation system can you know mm-hmm. can also be just one of the problems with it is that there's a lot less due process in for a parole or probation violation. So if you're on parole or probation or papers and you commit what they're saying is an infraction, you test positive for drugs or you have some kind of police encounter or whatever, you miss your curfew, then you can go, you know, get resentenced to a term in jail and then also an extra term of probation so you can people end up doing like long long terms because they keep sort of messing up but messing up is really you know going to your grandmother's funeral and staying with your relatives and not telling your PO about it ahead of time or something like that and you can have a really kind of vindictive jerk as your probation officer and there's not really that much oversight over who is a probation officer like there would be over who is a judge and ultimately, the judge has to sentence you to the time, but the standards are much lower. And, you know, there's no federal rules of evidence at play, and there's no beyond a reasonable doubt standard. So it's just, it can really keep people from doing anything. Like, you, you have to get permission if you want to move out of state or, you know, anything like that. So people are kind of on lockdown even when they're out. And I have a, had a lot of clients over the years who haven't wanted to be on papers. They were like, just let me get me a sentence and like ter- get my parole terminated. I'll go to jail. I don't care. I just don't want to be on parole anymore. Wow. It's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. And, and one of the, the things that seems the most unfair is how you can get a parole violation for getting arrested. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, that's a po- call, what I said, a police encounter. And, and that's you know? like, you know, <laughs> the idea that that's not just such an inherently racist and, you know, biased concept because you could get arrested on on nonsense. Right. Like, yeah, like, you can I, just get arrested. I mean, that's why we have a whole judicial system is to say whether it was fair for you to be arrested. I mean, there's a bunch of things at play there. So parole, probation. Still part of mass incarceration. Yeah. Ugh. I don't know if you saw the new ta- proposed tax bill this week while you were in I, South Africa. I, I tried I tried to avoid it, mostly. <laughs> well, it was, like, pretty, pretty exciting for you and I, anyway. How so? Well, they're going to give us a tax rebate or break or a cut. They're going to give me a tax break? Yes, because Sweet. because we lease private jets for more than 31 days. Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> so all of the money you spend on your private jet, you're going to get to take off of your, I guess, gross earnings. Sweet. Yeah. And and basically, it seems like, the one thing I did see from the tax bill is this thing where they're like <laughs> going to make it impossible to get a PhD unless you're a rich guy. Yes. Yes. That is what they're going to do. And also, they're going to give you. So if you pay for your children's private elementary school, 
that's tax deductible, but your student loan interest after you go to college, say you're poor, you have to take out loans. What? I don't, what is this concept? Taking out loans to go to school? I've never heard of this. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's very foreign. Very foreign. Um, so right now you get to – so right now it is that if you pay for your kids to go to college, then that is all tax deductible. Maybe people don't know this. And if you have to pay your way through college through loans, that is not all tax deductible. So we have to pay taxes on our income, and we don't get to deduct our student loan payments right now. What we do get to deduct is the interest that we pay on those payments up to $2,500 a year. Yeah. So they're going to extend this injustice and unfairness, which is so clearly an injustice and unfairness, by making it so that rich people can pay for their children's private school and deduct that from their taxes. And they're going to get rid of the way that we, normal people, have to have a tiny little tax break just on our interest, on our on our student loans, up to $2,500. Wow. So it's really, I mean... It's, it's, it's like, really great. It's, <laughs> it just seems great. It seems that it's really the idea is to keep <laughs> higher education out of reach even further for anyone who's not already rich. Yes. And to, you know, further... I don't know what, I mean, I don't know what it is to give rich people tax breaks on their uh, elementary school, private schools, but whatever that is, whatever the aims of that are, it is going to do that too. Great. So I got one more. So this is a little bit of a preview for an upcoming episode and, oh, really? a, and a favorite and a favorite topic of ours, but I'll, I'll read you the, the opening paragraph from oh, the Washington Post. I'm so excited. This is from the Washington Post. November 14th, former subway pitchman Jared Fogel has tried to argue that he's a sovereign citizen. Oh, no. <laughs> claiming a federal court what? that convicted him on child pornography and sexual conduct oh involving minors God. did not have the authority to do it. Wow. Wow, because his name was in all caps? I, I don't know. <laughs> but, yeah, so... So the, just a little taste into, Excellent. The, <laughs> into the sovereign citizen Excellent. legal theories. Oh, gosh. We have so much to say about that. <laughs> Coming soon. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, without further ado, let's get to our interview. If you could start, just tell us about uh, how you became a lawyer, why, why you became a lawyer, uh, what, some of the work you've done in the past, you know, a general introduction. So my name is Modani Moravi. Um, I'm, I'm a human rights lawyer from Kenya. And uh, the journey began because as a young girl growing up in Kenya, and I'm sure this is an experience for many women, especially in Africa, uh, seeing inequality and not knowing what to do about it, but also our lawyers held this prominent position in society. So I, I felt that if I was a lawyer, I could defend these women. And many of them were actually like my relatives. So for example, I, a lot of my um, female cousins dropped out of school because they got pregnant. And in those days in Kenya, you couldn't go back to school. So your, your life just pretty much stopped, right? Or, um, you know, all my aunties or like relatives or even just women around me, seeing how being in a marriage where the man left and left her with children and with no resources just uh, plummeted her into poverty. 
And so there were so many examples of that, right, around me. And I, and I just didn't understand why this happened to women. And so in talking with my family, you know, my parents were always like, oh, you're so uh, talkative and arguing with everybody, you should be a lawyer. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, I, yeah, actually I could be a lawyer. And then in those days in Kenya, I mean, we, you know, we wonder a very repressive regime. So, you know, you didn't have a lot of material like books or even entertainment, right? So, you know, you read like John Grisham and all these like cheesy <laughs> lawyer or watching law, law programs on TV and thinking, I could do that. I could be that person defending women. So this is, this is the idea that kind of got me into law school. And then when I went into law school, I at first was like, oh, wow, this is, you know, this hierarchy within the law school, uh, you know, the, how at least in our societies, in post-colonial societies, uh, there's such a hierarchy within uh, the legal profession where the lawyer becomes uh, this special person. Uh, instead of serving the people, they feel that they should, you know, be treated in a special way or get a special status. And that kind of put me off. Um, so I worked for a law firm when I graduated. And then one time a friend of mine just said, oh, wow, you know, you all, you're always talking about these women gender things, you know, like, <laughs> and she's like, but this is, there's this organization and they're looking for an intern. And I thought, wow, okay, I never heard of them. So I applied for an internship at Equality Now. And it was great because it was like all the things that I loved about law. It was like women's rights and it was like using the law as a tool for social change. And I was just so, you know, blown away. So that basically, long story short, <laughs> that's how I, I started off. And then, um, so my career from that point on started with uh, legal research, understanding how human rights uh, were applied. So in terms of in domestic uh, law, um, how women could use, for example, the CEDAW, so the Convention on Ending Discrimination, All Discrimination Against Women, and uh, just seeing how international human rights instruments were really crucial for women's movements in mobilizing governments to actually change the laws back home. And that's really what I, I understood because at the domestic level, at the time, laws were not that progressive. And the women's rights movement was holding governments accountable because they had ratified, at least in Kenya, they had ratified uh, these different conventions on women's rights or human rights, and so mobilizing together and putting pressure on governments to put to change law. So that was really interesting to see because one of the things that I remember Kenya did was uh, rat, um, what was it? Uh, domesticate the uh, the UN Children's Convention into uh, national legislation. Then we had the Children's Act, and it really took the provisions within the UN Charter into the domestic law. And that was a way that we could then actually apply uh, child rights uh, principles within the justice system. So seeing that process really made me see how um, the role that international uh, human rights instruments plays in, in shifting um, uh, principles and in shifting values and in shifting how governments uh, legislate around, you know, people and especially how, for example, the CEDAW and other groups can actually advocate for change by using very strategic advocacy. So it was understanding how that works and then using strategic advocacy to push governments to change. So 
So then that's been my, my journey for a long time. And um, lastly was in the last five years, we started seeing that a lot of countries shifted from having repressive laws against women, repealing a lot of those laws. So we started to see many countries would have good policies in place or good uh, pieces of legislation in place. But then the challenge was how to implement that to actually make it mean something for women. So one of the things that with women's rights organizations that was useful was using strategic litigation as a way to force governments or force states to actually apply the law as is or to actually uh, change a law that was uh, discriminatory or actually to also identify a gap within the legislation. Wow, that's so, that's so interesting. Maybe you could tell us about some of your cases. Yeah, wow. Um, I think one of, one of the ones that I found really interesting was uh, in Zambia. So when I was working with Equality Now, uh, we got a case of a young girl who had been sexually abused by her teacher, her school teacher, she was 13. And uh, the school knew that this teacher had been sexually abusing other children, but in this case had done nothing. And the only way that this was uh, put to light was that when the aunt reported to the principal, uh, he just, turned to the teacher and said, oh, you've done it again. So when she realized this, she said, what you mean this has been happening? And so of course she reported the case to the police. Um, no action was taken and she was really frustrated because she wanted to make sure that something was done. The teacher was never suspended, no disciplinary action was taken against him. He continued to, to teach in the school. And so one of her friends, um, kind of directed her to a lawyer. And when the lawyer was looking at the case, it was usually, it was basically to push the, the police to prosecute in this particular case. And the lawyer said, wait a minute. Um, so this is a public school. Um, so the teacher is an employee of the ministry, under the Ministry of Education. So in essence, uh, the Ministry of Education, having known that this man was sexually abusing children, sh are liable. And why don't we sue the government? And in this case, that's when they engage with us in terms of how could we, uh, how could we um, bring forward a case, uh, you know, suing the government, but also how could he argue his, um, how could he make arguments that reflected uh, women's rights and holding the government accountable because in this instance, Zambia had ratified the protocol on the rights of women in Africa. So in that particular case, the judge was very, of course, uh, uh, in, well, that's a good thing, he was appalled by, by what had happened because in Zambia at the time, and it still continues, this is not seen as uh, um, out of the ordinary, right? It's so normalized. So when sexual violence is normalized, people don't see that it's a problem. So in the, during the court case, the teacher said that, well, she was my girlfriend, um, so you know, there was no problem with it. So the, the judge was like, this is ridiculous. This guy is an abuser. So um, the judge, the judge uh, gave a really good decision where he held the Ministry of Education liable for for the violence that the young girl had, had, had experienced in the school and asked for the government to, to uh, provide damages to cater for you know, all the suffering. 
but noting that no amount of money or damages could really, you know, uh, rectify the situation, but also calling on the director of public prosecution to also initiate an investigation into this particular case and see whether this case could be uh, prosecuted under criminal law. Um, when this decision came out, it was interesting because it was the first time, of course, that you have a young girl going against the government of Zambia, for example. You know, you don't see that kind of uh, litigation in many of our countries. But also that um, the judge was able to clearly identify what the Ministry of Education needed to do, which was ensure that there were clear guidelines in schools that would uh, direct how uh, schools deal with cases of sexual violence. This didn't exist at the time. And so the organizations um, came together and created a coalition and started advocating for the Ministry of Education to put in place these guidelines. But then they also recognized that there's a broader issue around sexual violence and the normalization of violence. So engaging, so they developed a really interesting com campaign around targeting different groups or working with children and young boys around toxic masculinity, working with young girls in terms of how can they know their rights, how can they challenge, how can they report cases of violence, working with the media to ensure that um, information was getting out to the public in terms of that this is not, you know, challenging the normative uh, narrative around violence and that it's the girl's fault or the stigma that is associated with violence, as well as working with the lawyers. One of the things that we saw was that lawyers need to be more um, informed in ways uh, in strategic litigation, so in, in identifying uh, key gaps in the law and using uh, legal strategies to, um, to challenge those, those, those gaps. And this is something new. So we, we liars with the Law Society of uh, Zambia, for example, which was great to get them on board, to be able to train their lawyers so that when these kinds of cases come up, whether it's about sexual violence or whichever other case, that they can take up this opportunity to hold government accountable. So I mean, that was great. And uh, f so from this one case came out a whole program. One which is a more challenging uh, aspect of litigation is a case that we, we worked on in Ethiopia, which was a case of uh, a young girl who had been abducted uh, for marriage. Because in Ethiopia at the time, you had this practice where a young man uh, abducts a young girl, kidnaps a young girl, and, and rapes her, and then goes back to the family and says, well, you know, the girl is quote unquote uh, damaged goods, so now I have to marry her. And usually, this is, <clears throat> sorry, this causes the family to give up the, the daughter because there's this, all these norms around girl, you know, like purity and, and virginity and, and the value of a young girl in, in the society. So, in this particular case, this young girl was abducted, but she escaped, and her father supported her and reported the case. The case went to court and the men were found guilty and given 10 years. But then they appealed the, the decision at the lower court. And when they appealed the decision, there was some miss, uh, how, what's the name? Yeah, I think there was a deal scored between them and the prosecutor, right? And so when the case came up for hearing, the prosecutor wasn't there to, to defend the case, so the men won and were released. And the, the case proceeded in that way until the Supreme Court uh, in Ethiopia and was thrown out. 
So, and this was, took a long time. But during that time, whereas the, the decision, we didn't get the decision that we had wanted to hold these men accountable. And the government, um, because we, we were able to create advocacy around this case and show that these things happen to not just her, this is a systematic issue, this is something that's happening. And in Ethiopia at the time, you had a, a provision of the law that um, excused men who raped their their, 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 their victims and married them. So the young girl had been forced to sign a marriage contract and this was because the men knew that if she signed it, they wouldn't be liable. And um, we were able to mobilize, you know, with the different groups in Ethiopia, like the Ethiopian Women Lawyers Association and various groups to really highlight this practice and call on the government to change the law. So at the time, there was a constitutional amendment happening in Ethiopia, and that actually went into the new constitution, which said that this practice, this abduction and rape practice is illegal and, and re reversed the, the, the previous provision. So that was a gain in terms of the advocacy that came out from this particular case, whereas the survivor herself didn't get justice. So Coming back again to the earlier discussion where we thought, okay, we didn't get the justice we wanted. You know, we felt that somebody had to be held accountable for this, that, um, yeah, she had to get justice. So we thought, why not take this case to the African Commission? Because it would be the first case on women's rights or girls' rights or any, yeah, on gender that would be at the commission. So we then decided that this would be a good case to take. and actually hold the Ethiopian government accountable for failure to protect her, to, to pro, sorry, for failure, for, yeah, failure to guarantee her access to justice uh, within the, the judicial process in, in Ethiopia, and also to highlight some of the misnormalities that had happened in her case and that were never taken into account. And this case went to the commission, but it took seven years. Uh, to prosecute because, like I said before, the commission is great. I, I think it's a great avenue for, for uh, yeah, seeking justice, but also one must be prepared for the length of time with which it takes. So in terms of being strategic, sometimes it might not always be the best for the survivor. Uh, but then during the seven years, it was quite tough because I represented her before the commission. Um, it was adjourned many times. The commission tended to believe the government when it didn't put forward any, 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 uh, you know, uh, its arguments. They, you know, they got a lot of time. You know, the, at the next session, they, they'd be like, "Oh, we haven't done it. Next time, next time." So it took long, and that was frustrating for the survivor because she could see that this this process is not working. But at the same time, Ethiopia is uh, is quite a repressive regime. So for a young person or anybody to stand up against the government of Ethiopia, and I think now many governments, is, is not easy. You know, there's a lot of pressure to either, you know, um, discharge with the case or withdraw the case, right? And so she was getting a lot of pressure from the government and she had to leave the country actually because she was getting a lot of threats. Um, because we had wanted to do, at one point, um, a settlement. Initially, as a strategy, we thought, well, if the government is, 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 is willing, we can reach a settlement where we, we make a set of demands on the government to take certain action. For example, 
ensure that there are well-funded programs to, in terms of changing behavior or addressing um, the practice beyond just the law itself, but also that she would get compensation for you know, what she had gone through, but also that there would be a disciplinary action taken against the prosecutor who had uh, handled her case for mishandling her case. So initially there was willingness and then it took a very long time and then they started pressuring her to, to, to accept a deal that she didn't want or she wasn't comfortable with. So then she, she then advised us that no, okay, I don't agree with what's been put on the table and we also didn't see that they didn't commit to the conditions we had wanted and so then they proceeded, we, we decided to proceed. And we only got this, so this, this case was launched in 2007, and we got the decision in 2015. So, so yeah, so those are some of the challenges in terms of, um, you know, justice delayed is justice denied. It becomes quite difficult. And for the survivor, it was quite, I mean, it was quite brutal. Sometimes we don't, when we're trying to do strategic litigation, um, you, you, there are certain wins that we've seen and we, there are certain, there's definitely certain uh, yeah, successes, but then sometimes it's also good to reflect on what this process can do to survivors or groups of people agitating for their rights and how we can, as organizations or lawyers who are interested in this kind of strategies, make sure that we take care of the well-being of of survivors or groups and understand that the, the price that they pay sometimes for just standing up, especially when the cases drag on. So sometimes we also advise, uh, we would also advise our uh, partners that there might be an opportunity for maybe undertaking strategic litigation, but you must want to think there, there might be other ways of getting what you want. Wow, so you've really worked in a multitude of, of, of places. And I know you've addressed some of those dynamics of, of dealing with people um, where you're coming in as lawyers, but I, I feel like there's also a big dynamic, especially in international NGOs, where you have uh, people, mostly white, mostly Western, coming in and they want to help, but that also has its own, creates its own problems or its own set of uh, issues. Yeah, yeah, and and this is it's always a challenge because one of the things that, at least from my experience, is that um, we must always be reflective of our position and power wherever we stand. So in the case of when we when we're working with uh, organizations, especially in the West, the U.S. or in Europe, um, we we found that for a long time there wasn't a reflection of the kind of power that these organizations have and how that power places them vis-a-vis -vis the, 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 the people that they want to help in country. And so in, in those kinds of circumstances, we've seen a lot of um, you know, extractive practices where the NGOs will come and they have good intentions, they want to help, they want to, yes, they hear the story, they want to help, so they come in, but then they often don't um, listen to what the groups are saying or the people that they're working with are saying. They don't take it as being serious. They actually don't engage them in, 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 in developing the strategies. So the idea that, oh, we're helping poor people, poor people, oh, poor them, you know, we'll just come with the ideas from, 
you know, wherever we're coming from, or we're gonna swoop in and we're gonna solve the problem. I mean, best example is was the Connie, <laughs> Connie campaign. You know, we have all the ideas and we're just gonna come and we're just gonna give them to you. And this is really patronizing because um, the assumption there is that we didn't think of these things, you know, like, oh, it's not that we didn't think that we could do these things, but nobody asks those questions in terms of uh, what do you need? How do you think you can solve your own problem? Because people have those answers. So, and the challenge has been, of course, because you know, having this kind of geopolitical divide, and, and also within a kind of post-colonial setup in Africa, uh, whiteness relates with people in a very, in a very different way, right? And the whiteness symbolizes power, and how people relate to that power might vary from place to place, and so. And that power also, you know, comes also with money. And so people might not say the things they want to say because they're, they're very poor and they, they really do need the money, right? They really do need this kind of like survival, uh, you know, basic things. Where, but then most of the time these things have been often damaging because it, it, it paints our communities as being helpless, as being, um, you know, it reinforces this idea that Africans don't know how to solve their own problems. You know, we must help them. Uh, you know, why are they so messed up? You know, why are they? Why can't they just? Why do they like fighting so much? You know, this kind of non. -ref so the, a lack of reflecting on how, uh, you know, post-colonial Africa has to deal with its colonial past, but also how the people who are coming from whether it's the U.S. or Europe have also to deal with their own colonial past and their whether or not they reinforce those uh, racial hierarchies when they come here. And, I, and, and it's interesting, many people don't think of those things because you know, uh, they think they're doing something good, but also that they believe this idea that people are helpless. And so, and I have resources, so I can help you and not have a, a, a dialogue with the people. So, and then that has also created a culture of dependency because people realize, oh, okay, people will come and fix this, so I don't need to do anything. You know, the big organizations, uh, we've been guilty. I mean, they've been guilty of, you know, coming in, spending money in communities and then leaving and not really engaging the communities from the beginning, from the get-go in designing the kind of, you know, uh, whatever it is that they're working, the strategies, uh, thinking through how can we implement it, and then thinking also how, after we're gone, after this process, how can you ensure that it's sustainable, right? So that conversation doesn't happen. So, and the assumption is that if I come and build a well in your area, that's good, you'll be happy. I didn't talk to you if you needed a well. Maybe where, <laughs> maybe where I put the well is not actually convenient for you, right? And so when I go, you're like, oh, when it breaks, you're not invested in that well. You're like, you go back to what you were doing before. And often a lot of times we get questions like, I don't understand why they don't use the things that we build. Why are they not using this and that? And you're like, but did you ever ask them if that's what they needed, right? That like very basic, ask people what they need. I, I like that, um, ask people what they need. It's uh, very simple and very, very good perspective when you are trying to help people. <laughs> Can you think of an example of where an organization has, has done a good job of this or a story of where this kind of approach is working? 
I think there are many, and I think it's shifted. Just even like hearing the conversations today compared to when I started um, is definitely different. You know, for example, we today we talk of co-creating spaces. Um, a lot of organizations take the back step. You know, before, and I would say, for example, organizations wanted to do something and brand it. So if it's Mothonian organization, I want everybody to know I did it. And it's I control the resources, but I also control content, I control everything. And now you see that a lot of organizations are actually taking a step back and saying, okay, um, we can provide this kind of support with you. Tell, you know, let's collaborate, let's start the process together. Let's sit in a room, let's talk about what is it you need. What, can, what support can I offer you? And, and then we, you know, and just thinking of examples, like I just, I remember one time, uh, for a long time, uh, grassroots organizations, you know, like really women who are working in the community who didn't have resources but were challenging female genital mutilation in their own communities. And they wouldn't get funding because they didn't write the proposals in a way that the funders would fund them. They didn't have a bank account. They didn't have all these things, right, that would enable them to get uh, the contract, the, the funding. And one of the organizations I worked for was realized that that's actually the problem. So we worked with local women, grassroots women, fundraise for unrestricted funds, which is quite difficult to do today, and trusted that these women knew their communities, they knew the, what needed to be done. So our responsibilities was just to facilitate a, you know, a space for, for them to think through their project together with us and for them to lead it. And then we would then take back the learning back to donors. So we actually started holding donors accountable and saying that, well, while, while you do this kind of work, you leave out um, grassroots women who are doing really great work because they, don't, they will never fall into your... Uh, you know, your your group of people, and also they don't have funding and they're doing really great work. Instead, you've professionalized NGO work. So if I write the best proposal, I get the money, right? And so I think that was great. And the, one of the strategies we use, which is, I don't see a lot of organizations doing, is walked through with these groups. So we didn't we didn't work with many uh, activists because it's difficult but instead chose a few activists that we, we knew were doing great work and worked with them to build their capacity where they needed it. So for example, they would say, well, I don't have any financial uh, skills. I don't know how to do my books. How can, I, how can I do that? How can I prepare a budget? How can I uh, fundraise? How can I, yeah, whatever the need was. And working with them slowly to develop those skills. So I remember one woman who started off she was a teacher walking from door to door to door in the Maasai land, just you know, knocking on people's doors and trying to convince parents not to have their girls uh, undergo female genital mutilation. That's where she started and today she has a school where she's able to host young women who escape their homes, uh, running away from this practice and en enabling them to continue going to school and many of them have graduated from high school and gone on even to university or gotten jobs. And what is interesting now that it is these girls who have benefited from, 
from this that go back to the community and say, look, look at me. I, I, didn't, I didn't get married early. I didn't go through this practice. I finished my education. Now I can support my parents or I can do this and I can do that, you know, so. I think that's a good, and I think if not for this kind of thinking, I don't think she would have ever gotten any kind of uh, assistance, right? She would still, she, you know, she would still be having a hard time trying to get people to support her because of the way we've structured funding and donor, you mm. know, and our donor st uh, structures. Yeah. That's that's heartening to hear because I, I think that, I, I'm I'm encouraged to see more models like that where people are building local capacity and building the ability, helping people do things for themselves rather than um, the total top-down approach. It's it's good to hear that that's happening in multiple places. So moving from the organizational to the personal, I remember from law school a lot of people wanted wanted to enter into the international human rights, uh, broadly defined. And, you know, I, I feel like the stories you're telling me that, and the attitude seemed to be, seemed to be prevalent, that, uh, that people wanted to deal with the human rights issues abroad more than the ones at home. Whereas I, I would look around and, and think that we had a lot of international human rights issues in the U.S. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how how you deal with that? How how you know? Because you're dealing with it with it on the other end, and um and so talk about that. Yeah. Oh wow. Whew, I have stories. And you know, I mean, the thing is that so for example, I had the opportunity to do a lot of interviews because we got we got a lot of uh, law students, mostly mostly predominantly from the U.S. but also from other countries. None from Africa, which worried me a lot, but that's a different question. Um, and one, when I started doing the, the, the you know, vetting of, of the applications, my colleague came to me in the office and she said, listen, do not bring anybody here who does not understand the context and wants to save African women. You know, we don't wanna work with those kind of people because it's not useful, it's patronizing. And I remember one of the things that I used to do was during the interviews, I would ask them, so what human rights, what, what women's rights issues affect your state or where you're from or in your country? What are the things that you think are, are really important and how do you think that should happen? And I was so surprised that many of the students would be like, oh yeah, we don't, we don't have problems like you have in Africa. Or, or when I would ask, so why do you wanna come to Nairobi and not Africa? Because you know, <laughs> Africa is huge. Like, why, why, what is it that you want to come and do here? Why, why do you want to come? And a lot of them would be like, oh, because you know, African women are so oppressed, or you know, or you know, this kind of statement. And I'd be like, oh wow, it, you, you don't have similar issues in your country. Do you not see some parallels? And I'm, I, surprisingly, many people felt that that was not a problem in the countries where, in, you know, in the states where they were coming from because they would say, oh no, we, we have rights, yeah, we, ha we have them. But you know, you over there <laughs> don't have them. So I mean, this is the challenge is that, and maybe to your point that, my question was always for me, like I read these things in, in about, you know, violations happening in America, you know, police shootings or women, you know, suffering all kinds of violence, et cetera, you know. And just wondering, why would you come all the way here 
And, you know, for example, they're shooting people on the streets. Like, how can, how can that not, have you never engaged in that? Why not uh, work in your own community? But we did have interns who were, you know, working in their community. So those were the people we, we felt were useful to us because we could share our experiences in terms of what advocacy tools uh, did you use, how does it work in America, how does it work here in Kenya, et cetera. And we could, sh it was a, an, equal, an equal sharing. So, you know, it's just, I remember one question, because I was living in Sweden for a while, and, and one person told me how they were going to intern in Africa, but they'd been sent to Mauritius or some, somewhere, and they were upset because it wasn't the real Africa. And I asked them, mm, well, what is the real Africa? You know, you know, like, I want to be where, you know, people are really having problems. You know, this idea that people can just come to Africa and fix things, as opposed to, I'm coming to learn, I will contribute where I can. Or sometimes even, I would ask, well, you don't have to come to, if you want to meet Africans, you don't have to come all the way to Africa. There's many Africans, <laughs> I'm sure, who live around you, right? Especially in Europe, you have a lot of uh, African immigrants who are having various challenges, so why not engage them? Start there, start in your community, and then we're happy to have you. Thank you so much for that perspective. I really, I think it's very important that in these international collaborations, cross-cultural collaborations, that we have the goal of, of building solidarity, of learning from each other. We, we you know, we have different systems, we have different histories, but we also have different perspectives and maybe different solutions. And it goes both ways all the time. So certainly it would be absurd to think that as an American, you have some birthright to help someone else's country. I mean, look at our country um, and you know the deep system systemic problems that we face are not new, right? So, so I, I really appreciate that perspective. But you mentioned that you're not getting a lot of, you, you didn't see a lot of interns. Um, and development focused on, uh, on you, you said, African young attorneys. And, you know, I wonder, you know, you see that a lot here where the, the, in, the realities of income inequality and, and student loans and all the things that we face make it so that a lot of people, um, even from working class backgrounds in the U.S., end up going into corporate law. But uh, it seems like you, there's a similar situation in what you're describing uh, on the continent. Right, so yes, so my challenge was I was getting a lot of uh, interns from the US and sometimes Europe, but never from Africa. And when I started to question why, I realized that it's really punitive. Um, I mean, the cost is really punitive for a lot of African students. One, if they're from Kenya, uh, they don't have the finances. The universities don't provide um, fellowships, or certain like kind of scholarships that enable them to undertake certain internships, especially if these are far away or they have to travel. So for my, in my own experience, I remember that I undertook an internship because I really wanted to. And I remember my mom, you know, she was able to give me some money for bus fare and lunch and get transport. And I, therefore I was able to undertake this internship, especially after law school. But for most of my friends, they had to work in any law firm because you also have to pay for your, you know, your rent, you have to pay for your food. You need the basics. You don't have any support system. And also for African students out of Kenya, we have some of the most restrictive immigration laws for other African 
students. So if a student from Senegal wanted to come to Kenya, they would have to contend with having to get a visa. A flight costs almost $2,000 uh, to cross from Dakar to Nairobi, and then they would have to figure out their accommodation. So the cost is really high. So naturally, we didn't get a lot of interns. And when I, so I was trying to lobby for us to have a fund, and, and I advise organizations, especially who are working in Africa, to really build, uh, res to collect resources so that African students within Africa can actually move around and work in different human rights organizations uh, so that we can build the capacity of young lawyers so we don't have to spend so much money building the capacity of you know, lawyers in practice because we'll have already trained them you know, really at the get-go. So you know, shifting the strategy from engaging litigation lawyers, which is important, we need those, but also investing more in our younger lawyers so that they can have experiences that will enable them to do really good work on the continent. And I mean, an example, and I don't know if the UN has changed this, because the UN policy, for example, for interns, was they didn't provide any kind of resources or just even a stipend for them. So students have to get there. And a lot of the UN headquarters is Geneva or you know, like New York. Um, for an African student, that's just almost impossible. A, you have to cross borders into Europe, which is almost impossible. Uh, so that's already a barrier in terms of the kind of passport you hold because of the kind of geopolitical um, power structures we have in the world. And then the second thing is that they need resources to be able to take care of themselves in these countries where it's almost impossible to, to pay for yourself to go to Geneva or New York or even Addis Ababa. And uh, we find that at the end of the day, the people who will end up in huge international organizations doing um, interesting work will usually be those who had those experiences or in universities that provided um, resources for them to undertake uh, such, you know, like internships, with, whether it's, you know, with local organizations or at the UN or whichever, whichever, whichever agency. So then we see that, again, uh, you're always at the bottom, you know, you're, you're really running after everyone who started their race, like, you know, an hour before, so you're never catching up. So I, I think that's the challenge for many lawyers. And so if we really want to see the continent uh, really shift as organizations who are working in terms of legal reform and um, you know, using the law as a tool for social change, we really need to think of how we address these inequalities within, within our continent, but also within our own organization. And then and, and develop strategies to support our own young people to be able to to develop their skills, in, you know, in the various areas. That's very interesting. Maybe maybe what maybe you need a program like where you don't let for every Western student that their university sends as an intern, they pay for a local student to do the internship as well. Yeah, and I have to say, some organizations are better than others. So. I think there's been, so some organizations recognize that. So I'm not gonna say it's all organizations that do that. But um, we're still, you know, still quite a number. And I know there was a, a discussion in the UN last year, year before when a student camped out in Geneva or something of the sort because he or she couldn't find accommodation and didn't have enough money to secure you know, decent accommodation. It was a scandal. And I was like, oh yeah, but that's a white dude. Yeah, right? Like we can't even come there and camp. 
because that would be a whole different situation. <laughs> we would be deported. So, I mean, the police would be there in a second. So, again, how black bodies move in this world and how, especially when you, when you have these kinds of, um, you know, for Africa, we, we have so many restrictions in terms of travel, depending on the kind of passport you hold, and not, especially even within Africa, right? So, and then leaving Africa is just a whole other you know, exercise in, I don't know, emo emotional torment, where you have to go through immigration officials who torment you and, you know, all kinds of things. By the time you get to the place that you're going to, you've really gone through a process, a really demeaning visa process for somebody to say, yes, you can come, but we're not sure, and you don't even have resources to stay here, and et cetera. So, you know, we need to think broadly in terms of, the inequalities that exist, you know, amongst us, and which, like I said at the beginning, the positions of power we hold, and can we share that power? Can we step back and say, I have power, I'm able to do this, let me step back and give somebody else who doesn't have this opportunity to take on this, you know? And, and I think we can think of ways to support each other and create better solidarity where we let people make changes for themselves. I think these are really, really important points that you bring up and very important for, for people who are working uh, working across borders and across cultures to build that to, to really, you know, to think about what brought other people to where that where you are and, and that it's not this that we don't all have the same journey. We all move through the world in different ways. And to that if we're going to work together, we have to we have to be able to deal with that and we have to acknowledge that and we have to we have to take account for that if we want to have any semblance of actual equality. Um, but, and that's that's a challenge ahead. And and so to to move out to a bigger perspective here, what I'm going to give you a big question: what what are the big challenges facing the continent, uh, the legal structures that that you work in, um, and, and the movements in the coming decades? Okay, wow, Ooh, big question. <laughs> and I'm, and I'm going to just be honest and say that, uh, of course, I, have con uh, I don't know the whole of Africa, but just to start off with the challenges, uh, I think the biggest challenge for, for legal practice is that, like I said, as post-colonial Africa, we're still um, using colonial legal structures to adjudicate um, issues. And these are often quite contradictory and anti-people because they were designed to <laughs> they were designed to protect the colonialists. So, and in that sense, uh, politicians and powerful people have been able to use these like sometimes archaic laws to continue oppressing people, or uh, yeah, co continue oppressing people or denying people their rights. So that's the first challenge. The second challenge we have is that because we also have a parallel traditional laws and customs, and we have had a hard time trying to um, reconcile, you know, what you'd say as statutory uh, laws with like traditional customs and laws. Because like I said, it was a colonial system that didn't see Africans as people who had laws or who had customs worth their while, right? And this is something that's quite cultivated in how we think of justice and justice systems in Africa. So these two things always clash. The lawyers sometimes are struggling to see how can we ensure that we can preserve some of the good custom traditions and customs that we have, and at the same time get rid of 
um, the bad ones, for example, that discriminate against women or oppress certain groups of people. But the same for statutory law. How can we get rid of these old colonial archaic laws and, and kind of update them in a way that uh, is for the people? So I think that's the biggest challenge. And I think that's what I hear across. And it will, of course, vary in terms of how the colonial structure was set up in the particular country. Now, the, ch the problem with that is that because in, you don't learn that in school, it's only maybe in a few countries that might be, I think South Africa has a different setup. I'm not so uh, clear on it. So lawyers don't learn about those colonial structures. They don't, our history doesn't tell us how laws, for what reason these laws were created. So we don't know how to challenge them effectively and we don't see how they continue to imprison us. And we also are, of course, attached to our own customary laws and practices, and where they offer us certain privileges and positions, especially for men, we don't wanna get rid of them because they give us positions of power in our societies, in our communities. So I think that's, I think, more a fundamental challenge with practicing law in Africa. But in terms of trends, and, and I think what's happening now, I think globally, and again, to sound, not to sound cliche, is that you know, the internet has many bad things, but it also has many good things. I think that opening up of, of spaces for engagement, and I think for Africans to, to learn and share with one another across you know, the, the internet divide, and when we start talking, we start to realize, oh wow, okay, so these are some of the challenges. So the sharing in between uh, the legal mind. So I could say for Kenya, for example, when I was in law school, which was like 2000, yeah, um, there's only two law schools in Kenya, right, at the time. Uh, today there's more, and you have a lot of interesting engagement where the law is not seen as just purely commercial, but where the law is being debated as, can it be a social good? What does that mean for Kenya? And in Kenya we have had a, a new constitution in place, and we're struggling with um, political structures right at the moment. There's been a lot of debates. But the good thing that that has done for us is that we just had an election a few, a few weeks ago. In 2007-2008, when the election, when people felt they were grieved by the election because they felt it was rigged, people went to the street to seek justice because that's how people understood justice can be got because they had no faith in the institutions. And this time around, when people felt that they had not, they were aggrieved and they didn't um, get the results they wanted, we went to the Supreme Court of Kenya. And we, we, we called on the Supreme Court to make a decision on whether or not these elections had stood the test of time, right, according to the Constitution. And it was the first time we see in Africa that uh, <laughs> the judiciary goes against, you could say, a sitting president and annuls the election and calls for a rerun of an election. So that's a first in Africa, like we've never seen that before. So what that tells me is that there's a, a lot of things that are changing, you know. Uh, there's more access to information. People are starting to understand how the law should work for them. The communities are, are having more faith in, in institutions. Um, the African Union has done a good job. I mean, they, they're not perfect. But I think in trying to cultivate the idea of the rule of law, justice. There's a lot of problematics with the African Union and how it might interpret these things, but 
right now in Africa, we, are, we have so many um, treaties that spell out you know, human rights from even how African democracy and governance should, structure should happen. So we have all these um, yeah, structures that have been set up. And I think this has made people start to see the law as a tool for mobilizing or pushing for change within their countries. And they also see that at the African Union, it's, it's supporting their thinking at the national level, right? So if we're championing for human rights, we don't have to look to the UN. We don't have to look so far to, to find something that reinforces my right. I can just go to the government and say, you are a member of the African Union. You claim that you are African because this is the argument that is used often. And say, you cannot say this is an un-African because here we have an African Union document. So I think those little milestones have really um, shaped the way we're seeing the law. And these changes, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen in Kenya. It's pretty exciting. But um, other Africans are seeing it on the internet, people are reading about this, they're getting inspired. The, they see that the law, the justice system can actually work for them. And I think that's a shift in how we see the law. I mean, since colonial times, the justice systems have never worked to your benefit, right? They were there to oppress you and to keep you, you know, down and oppressed. And that Africans are creating these institutions that we keep on fixing and amending and we don't get it right and we make mis we'll make mistakes and we will, we will go through our process. But I think the fact that we're trying to establish rule of law and governance in Africa in a way that Africans find to be useful to them. You know? So I think that's really a shift in Africa. Yeah. And you know, it, there's a global uh, movement. So I mean, the, we, we look to other, jurisdictions, for example, we look at Latin America, for example, and the way movement, you know, I, I come from the women's movement and I see how, for example, indigenous movements in Latin America have, have pushed for land reform, right? So people are seeing these things and saying, okay, wow, like these people are pushing, they're changing certain structures within their, their, their communities and get encouraged. So I think that access to information, but also activists and organizations, um, cultivating that, that information and ensuring that citizens are engaged, are aware that this is happening. We've had a lot of cross, how you cross learning, right? From the South, so we call it South to South, where we have our colleagues from Asia or colleagues from Latin America coming to share their own experiences. You know, for example, India with public interest litigation, they've had a lot of cases in India working with Indian lawyers, working with, say, for example, lawyers in Kenya, and talking about how they were able to push for change. You know, I think that's, so, I, yeah. So I think it's positive. It's, it's challenging, but I think things are happening, yeah. Mudoni, thank you so much for this. This has been a real pleasure, and uh, I think very informative. Thank you. So no, you know, it's really it's really interesting. Uh, I, I I'm curious to hear your thoughts on 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 the interview. But you know, the thing that strikes me is that there's no similarities between 
the legal struggles in in Africa in far off Africa Jeez, and the US right, right? it's right. all it's, it's so like different the same same stuff just it's just crazy you know i mean it's like that's that's one of the things when uh you go to be a public defender in new orleans like everyone wants to go there and like save new orleans or maybe that was just when i was graduating and i was also one of those people and they're like, why do you want to come to New Orleans? And they're like, oh, because this is the where it's the worst, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like, no, it's also the best here, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And it's also the worst everywhere. Yes. Yes. It's the worst everywhere. <laughs> Just stay where you are. I mean, I'm guilty of this. Totally guilty of this. A hundred percent. Because I actually have interviewed with her organization. Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> with Equality Now? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Wow. Okay. I know. I get around. Were you one of those people who are like, we don't have problems in the U.S.? Well, That's why I, I want to come I was to selected for the internship, so I guess oh. I was on the good side. Nice, nice. But um, no, I remember the interview really well because I felt really uncomfortable talking about my feelings about FGM, like because I I was like, why am I? Why would I have any like authority to speak on this? So I just kind of like tried to be like, I think I probably tried to not speak about it and instead tried to speak about, I don't know what, I don't remember. I just remember thinking to myself like, oh my God, this is not for me. If I'm going to have to come in as like this white lady who is like, FGM is very wrong. Uh-huh. You yeah. should stop it. By the way, do you speak English stop, so stop, I can stop. tell you it's bad? Well, of course, that's the way I am everywhere I go because I only speak English, but, <laughs> no, but yeah. That's what I mean. Like, it's like, excuse me, sir. <laughs> do you speak English? If you do, what do you Do you generally about? mutilate your women folk? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, Um. so I didn't go to Equality Now, but it seems like it's really an awesome organization. Just Where did you end up? I went to, I did go to Africa. I went to Tanzania and I worked for a small NGO called LEAT, uh, which is Lawyers Environmental Action Team. Gotcha. And we tried to, well, it's a long, long story, but the organization was formed to kind of fight the big mining companies. So I felt like a little more like, yes, I can yell at big mining companies and that I feel comfortable doing. Yeah, that it's that it, there's it's like, more there's like, more room for kind of solidarity. Yeah, I'm that, just yelling like. at Americans and Canadians. You know, it's fine. I am very happy to do that. Um, but the organization sort of fallen apart when I got there. Um, the director had uh, cancer and was in India, and there was like weird other things going on. But um, and we worked a little bit on trying to reform the fisheries laws. And again. Those are huge multinational companies that are fishing and kind of writing the laws, and we were trying to make them more fair so that the Tanzanian people could actually eat their fish. But a movie, everyone, okay, I know I've done an, a previous shout out, but like everyone should watch this movie. It is the most depressing movie you'll ever see. Um, I know that's not like a, a big thing that you would maybe want to do, but like honestly, if you want to know about how bad the world is and how racism and sexism and economic inequality intersect, uh, on the ground in Africa, in Tanzania, you should watch this movie called Darwin's Nightmare. Yeah, I've, 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 I've avoided watching it due to the level of depression I felt that, that I would feel after watching it. But no, it I looks, know. It, I've, yeah. heard it, I've heard that it's really good. You have? Yeah. Someone else who's like really a movie person said it was their favorite movie, and I also say that, but I can't remember who that person was. Wow. Some like famous, amazing person. Wow. And me. But anyway, okay. yeah, moving on. So that was great that you interviewed her. That's so cool. Yeah, no, I thought it was really interesting. The stuff on internships also I, I found Ugh. fascinating, right? <laughs> that 
you know, I, 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 it was, it was just, it was so, you know, it was so, it was, it was cool to hear the, the perspective from her working, you know, in in Kenya, um, but. The, you know, because you, you see these people in law school, right? They're like, I want to do... Everyone wants to do international yeah, human rights. Yeah, everyone wants to do international human rights. That's like the main thing. Right. But but I, I, I really appreciate that. Like, what do you do to address the human rights? Like, it's not... They're not hard to find here. Yes. We well, just don't have an international context to, like, compare ourselves to often because we don't believe in... International anything. But it's like worse than that, though. If you go to these countries and you see who is doing international human rights work and the standard of living that they have, like my friends from fancy law school that I went to um, who were over in the area, like they were living in like mansions and they had like a million different, they had their own drivers and they were like, and and like when, when I say mansion, I mean like the shower heads, there's like more than one shower head per shower. Like, Abby's eyes just widened. Um, but yeah, they, and they they were like living these fancy, glamorous lives. And like the people who work for the UN are making so much money, like so much money compared to the per capita income there. That it's 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 like really. I'm not saying that you have to be like take a vow of poverty, but it's really like rife for exploitation. Like, how could you? Yeah, it would be hard to connect or hard to understand what you're actually even doing or where you actually are. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, I have one friend who is Irish and she came over to work for the EU to Tanzania to Dar es Salaam. And she was like they were trying to like set her up in these in these mansions. And she was like, no, I don't want to live in a mansion. And and they were like, OK, well, you know, here's another one that maybe you'll like. And it was like mansion upon mansion. And finally, like she asked her driver, she was like, can you tell me where do you live? And is there any way I can live there? And she ended up getting like a house or renting the ground floor of a house in like a normal neighborhood. And she was just like a very much cooler person than everybody else that um, (laughs) ever went over there to do international human rights work. And I mean, she still lives there. And I, I, I don't know where she works now. She worked for like in the IT department of the university and stuff like just regular. She she eventually got like regular people, professional jobs, but mm-hmm. like regular jobs. So you can do it, but it's just like totally not what anyone's trying to do. And it's like intoxicating kind of, you know, you can go to these restaurants and like hang out with your other expat friends and like they all live in these big houses and it's like so fun. You, you can know? just really have a kind of colonial experience. <laughs> yeah, you could have like the standard of living you could never have. Like they, yeah. their standards of living are so much better than the standard of living of like a law firm partner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, and that, I don't and that, know. That's uh, far but, afield. <laughs> but but yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, that that's the that's the comparison though, and that's kind of you know, I I I couldn't, I probably couldn't articulate it well in law school at that time. But you know, people want full luxury public interest or full yeah. full luxury justice work, whereas no one would want to be a dirty or well, not no one, but it, it somehow it's it's a different aspiration than being a dirty public defender, which if you. Like on the world yeah. stage, right? What is the, you couldn't call what we're doing in this country anything other than an international human rights nightmare, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. no, no mass con- incarceration. No country yeah. has ever done this, right? No, no, it's At unprecedented. Yeah. And so, you know, if we had a more internationalist perspective, we might say that the most pressing international human rights work to do would be right here. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, yeah. But I mean, not that it's not valuable to gain insight from other countries, but. Well, that's a problem, right? That we don't do that here. Like we're not looking around and saying, what is, you know, this other country doing that's good? Like even with jails, like we don't look and say like, how are jails supposed to operate or what is the solution to this problem of crime? Like, is it really to punish the people who have been punished the most in life who then commit infractions? Like, yeah. Probably not. Yeah, no. Probably that's but, not the way. <laughs> but, but part of my frustration has always been that that's not generally the perspective of international human rights work in, in kind of in oh, law in, school, yeah, right? Or whatever, yeah. right? Or it's, people it's, who do international human rights work. They're not like, you know, doing ha- housing law in America. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 but it, 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 there, I felt a lack of uh, effort or even consciousness of trying to develop international you know, maybe international solidarity or international connections on how do we solve our problems collectively. I often felt that the the perspective of Americans was, let me go and fix this broken other place. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But so that's why, was, to me, my place is just perfect. Yeah. That's why it's so interesting to hear, to hear not from only her, her perspective, it's the same thing. Yeah. To hear it from her perspective, it's the same thing. But also just see that it's like, you know, especially this week that she's, that one of the cases she's bringing is like an older man. Yeah. You know, in having a position a 13 of year old girlfriend. Yeah. Who's right? a member of the state. And then you can sue the state on behalf in Kenya. Yeah. <laughs> no, sorry, not in Kenya, in Zambia. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I don't amazing. Know. It was really, it was interesting for me. Yeah. I'm I, so glad you went there. It must have been such an amazing trip. Yeah. It was a great time. Um, and it was really cool to meet, to meet so many cool people. And yeah. So I hope it was interesting for you, our audience. You, the beautiful listener. And uh, yeah. I'm not sure what we're doing next time. No. Uh, but there will be a next time. And I have a trial coming up. So maybe. I, I was hoping to start a series of I would just want a trial, so maybe we can do that. Oh yeah! But I, I can think of a few <laughs> other. I know a few other friends who've won trials recently. So oh maybe really? We can, maybe cool. we can get. Maybe we can try to get some people in studio. Mmm. Who are like? Here's what happened. But I stay won. tuned. Maybe even. Yeah. So stay tuned. Uh, stay tuned. Against the law, we'll be back. Yeah. New stuff. New I hot. Hope you're takes. enjoying it. Lots of hot takes. Hit us up on Twitter. I want to be able to sleep. Are you on Twitter? I'm on Twitter, but I have a blocked account. Oh, yeah. yeah. You can find Grania. You should sign up on the Against the Law Twitter. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Against the Law, the first A is the at. Yeah. I'm uh-huh. Abi Hassan, A-B-I-H-A-S-S-E-N. And I'm... E-N, people. Oh, E-N. And I'm Grania. I, you know, adopt technology early. Yeah, because that was a hot one. In it Ireland. is a hot one. In Ireland. Twitter is not just in America. That's true. All, All right. right, people. Bye. Bye.